I have a couple of friends of mine, and some of you are familiar with this story. I mean, I, I, I preach a lot of the same things over and over and over again. It's not for lack of material. It's because they're important. I repeat myself, and I know I repeat myself. You'll find I probably have like six sermons and, and 800 presentations of the same six messages. You know, I, six is a random number I pulled, but it's not very many. It's less than ten probably. So some of you are probably familiar with this, but there's these two ladies that I'm friends with. Uh, one of them's name is Aaron, the other one's Sandy. And, and what they began to do a couple of years ago is these ladies began to reach out and, to the sugar shack. Now, I'm not talking about Dietz's, okay? Dietz doesn't need us to reach out to it. Dietz is reaching out to us. Hallelujah. <laughs> I mean, I'm a big fan of ice cream. And so, you know, anyways. But I'm talking about the sugar shack that's over in Clarion. It's a couple of miles down the road from the Clarion Alliance Church. This place is, I'm not going to call it what everybody tries to call it because I think it adds some kind of legitimacy to it. It is a strip club. It is not a gentleman's club. It is a strip club. It, it, is, a, it is a place where sex is peddled even if we're not having the actual physical act. Okay? And so Sandy and Aaron, they began to reach out toward, towards the ladies who were down there. The, the basic idea of this outreach for them was to reach out to these women by going into the club while they were there dancing. To sit down and talk with them. This is ladies doing this, okay? To go into the club while they're dancing, to sit down, to talk with them, to, to buy them to buy them hygiene products, you know, loofah scrubs and body wash and different things like that. And just to begin to cultivate the ground in their hearts and to say, hey, we love you. Hey, we want to be a part of your life. Hey, we know that the Christian community has scorned you and has criticized you and has ridiculed you. And it said that until you change your sinful, wicked ways, they want none of you. But we want to reach out to you. Because we realize that's not what Jesus does. But some of you right now are already starting to struggle. Hang with me. I'll prove it. But what happened was very interesting. It wasn't the owner of the sugar shack or the manager, or the bouncers, or the women at the Sugar Shack who had an issue with this. It was the number one group of people who I find myself at odds with every single time I want to do outreach. It was the church. It was the church who had an issue with this. Not just people at Clarion CMA, other church people even around the, around the country had an issue with the fact that we had people in our church reaching out to these women. They were saying, this isn't right. They shouldn't be, these women are dirty. These women are this. These women are that. And, and, and you shouldn't be doing this. We even had one gentleman who's in his 60s who said that if his wife, 60 plus year old wife, was to reach out to these women, 
they would defile her. His 60 plus year old wife would be defiled by these women. Now, I'm, praise God, I'm looking around and I see a lot of you with looks on your face like, you gotta be kidding me. How are they gonna defile her? It gets worse. She's legally blind. She couldn't even see what they were doing. But it was going to defile her. This, this is an attitude of superiority. This is an attitude of arrogance and looking down our nose at people. Now I want you to understand something. I know this guy that I'm talking about loves the Lord. I love him. This was an area where he needed to grow at. I'm not beating this guy up. I love the guy. I would go right now to the gates of hell with him. So understand that. I'm using this. There's plenty of stuff people can use about my life that's bad examples too. Okay? This is just one area the brother needed to grow. There's a lot of areas he was great in. This, this attitude of superiority that we often display towards people in certain segments of society whose sin is so heinous as to defile us makes me think that we ought to just put on name badges that say, Hello, I'm better than you. I mean, isn't that what we're saying? Hello, I'm better than you. You're failing. Your sin, the item that you struggle with, well, you're a piece of garbage. I don't have that problem, so I'm better than you. I mean, we don't just do it for people out in the lost community. We do it for people who we're sitting next to in the pew, who are struggling with some kind of sin that maybe we're not struggling with, and we're like, well, how in the heck can they do that? For instance, I had another man, and there was a part of a church that I was working with, and, and he had an issue with, with some of the things that the youth pastor was doing, and, and he said, he's a youth pastor, he should know better than this. And I said, why? Because you understand? What says because he's a youth pastor, he understands everything? And by, by the way, what says you're right? I mean, this wasn't an area where, where we're talking about the guy was going to reach out to, to strippers while they're dancing. This was our youth pastor was sending people around door to door in the neighborhood where they were doing youth activities, sending teenagers door to doors to houses they knew other teenagers lived at and saying, hey, come and join us. And this guy was like, oh, he's, he's, this is dangerous. They were like 16 years old. They could drive on their own. I don't understand why it was dangerous, but, you know. But we, we can't do this. We can't reach out to people like this. It's dangerous. This, this attitude of superiority, we ought to just put on our little name badge. Hello, I'm better than you. Hello, you're not worth my time. Hello, you get yourself cleaned up and then you can come be a part of my church. Hey, you get yourself cleaned up and then you can come over to my house for dinner or come to my barbecue or, or join my softball team. Hey, get your life straightened out. You get fixed and then you come and be a part. Now understand something here, guys. Listen, I'm not saying church leaders need to be caught up in, in just sinful lifestyles. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that 
we can't criticize each other like this. But I, I'm getting ahead of myself. So I want to go, I want to get back on track here. This begs the question, do I want them saved? Do I really want people saved no matter what the personal cost to me? Do I want these strippers, do I want them to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ no matter what it costs me? Do I want the the owner of the bar to come to know Jesus Christ no matter what it costs me? Do I want this person who's living in sin to to come to know Jesus Christ no matter what it costs me? Do I want this person who, who is caught up in drug addiction to come to know Jesus Christ no matter what it costs me? Do, do I, am I willing to allow myself to be touched? by the dregs of society so that they can come to know Jesus Christ. Before we answer this question, I think we need to look at the Scriptures. So open your Bible to James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Obviously, I'm not going to go as in-depth as I usually go into the, into the Greek and all of that stuff. But let's look at these verses together. Now, I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. You guys all know that, that are, have been here for a while. For those of you who haven't, the English Standard Version is just a translation. You might be using the NIV or the King James Version, and that's okay. They're all just translations. Jesus didn't speak English, even Old English. He spoke Greek and Aramaic, probably Hebrew, some. The New Testament was written in Greek. We got any uh, coin Greek speakers in the building? Okay, so we all need a translation. Amen. Amen? Can we agree we all need translations? Amen? Okay. So, my brothers, verse, chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, well, you, you sit here in a good place. And to the other one, you say, stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in, I lost my place, in the world to be rich in the faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin. Oh, back up. That kind of hurts, preacher. If you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. This is the part I really love about this. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy mercy 
triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Father, do a work in us. Lord, I know that many people here have heard this illustration about the strippers before. But Lord, it is such a powerful picture of what we often do to people that we think are less than us. Lord, do a work inside of our hearts today that we might be open to what you're saying and that we might begin to have a heart for lost people no matter what it costs us. And so in Jesus' name we pray and God's people said, amen. There's several important points that jump out from this passage of Scripture. The, the first thing that jumps out to me is value judgments. It, it, it's that we're prone to make value judgments concerning other people. I mean, that's what we see in the first several verses. You know, my brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man, and he goes on, right? I mean, the, why would James bring this up if we weren't prone to do it? I mean, it seems to me when I read God's word, he talks about the things that we get caught up in. You know, he's not talking about stuff that's not an issue for us. He always is kind of hitting us where we live, which kind of hurts. That's why you need to wheel, that's that's why you need to wear steel-toed boots to church. Because God will step on your toes. That's why you need to wear steel-toed boots when you're reading the scriptures. Because if you're being honest, God will step on your toes. He'll convict you. And you'll be like, ow, that hurts. Right? And this value judgment thing jumps out to me. I mean, we make value judgments. But the thing about these value judgments is this. Value judgments, regardless of their basis, degrade the one who we're judging. Regardless of the basis of the value judgment, it degrades the person we're judging. They degrade the person we're judging to be less. They're saying because what you have or don't have or or what you're doing or not doing, you are worth less or worthless. Than this other person. They degrade them. But you know who else they degrade? The person we judge to be more. The person that we say is better off. We're degrading them as well. We're actually bringing them down. Because we're saying their value lies. In what they do. In what they say. In how they live. In how they act. In the money they have. In whatever. And and. It's making them less of a person, not more of a person. They degrade these people because they say our worth is defined by what? By external things about us. For the person who's who's in a sinful lifestyle, it's degrading them because you're saying that they are their sin. Listen. I'm not my sin. I have sin struggles. Some of you don't want to hear about that. I've heard that. People don't want to hear that. They say, I don't want to know about my pastor's sin. Can I lovingly say, please try to get over that? 
Because this is how pastors all over the country are falling and, and having grand moral failures. Because nobody in their church wants to hear about what their pastor's going through or what the staff is going through or all of that. You know, my worth isn't just what I do preaching up here. And I'm not getting ready to confess some heinous sin to you this morning. I'm just saying, the bottom line, we need to get over that. My sin doesn't define me. Listen, there are some of you that have some pretty crazy sin stuff going on in your life. Listen, this is from the Lord. That's not who you are. It's not who you are. I want to look at this section. It's not who you are. I mean, look over here. That's not who you are. You are not your sin. That is not where your value lies. It is not what defines you. I I tell people all the time, you guys have heard all of this. I I know you've heard it. Please, for the love of God, don't raise your hands. I always say, raise your hand if you're a sinner. And people always raise their hand. Listen, there's only one place in the New Testament I know that it might possibly refer to you as a sinner. Possibly. And that's in the book of James when it says, purify your hands, O sinners. Except for it's an Old Testament quotation, and I don't think he's actually talking to believers. Because he tells me that my sin is forgiven. He separates it from me as far as the east is from the west. He puts it behind his back. He puts it in the depths of the deepest oceans. He remembers it no more. My sin doesn't define me. So why would he call me sinner? Like if you're born again, you're a saint. Your sin doesn't define you. Even when you sin as a saint, it doesn't define you. I am a breed love. Good or bad, no matter what. Come what may, I'm a breed love. Kevin is a weaver. Come what may. No matter what, he's a weaver. Nothing he's going to do or say is going to change any of that. Nothing I'm going to do or say is going to change that that I'm a breed love. Nothing that that Brian is going to do or say is going to change that he is a Scheffler. Schreffler. (laughs) What kind of friend am I? Mispronounce your name right here in front of everybody. (laughs) A Schreffler. Man, I've known him long enough. I can't believe I did that. So nothing's going to change that. He's not going to be defined. Brian is not a BMW, which is what his motorcycle is. Right? Kevin's not a Jeep. I am a tank. No, I'm <laughs> no, just kidding. But you see, our sin doesn't define us. Our things don't define us. Where we live doesn't define us. All of those things don't define us. And we degrade people. We make them worth less when we let these value judgments that we make about define them. See, the value judgments ignore or discount our true worth, which is the imago Dei. This is the fancy Latin word for in the image of God. Your value, even a lost person's value, is that they are created in the image of God. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them in in His image. Your value, even if you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, is that you were created in the image of God. He created you to enter into this messy, crazy relationship that we call Christianity with Him because you have intrinsic value just in the sense of being. 
And any time we define somebody by anything other than that, we degrade them, even if we're trying to lift them up. I don't mean we can't compliment people. I don't mean we can't say, wow, you're a great guitar player. Okay, that's okay to compliment somebody. Oh, hey, man, you're, you're great at this, or da 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 Or, hey, you need to improve in this area. That's not, that's not what I'm saying, okay? But when we say, oh, who's Jim Welch? He's the guitar player. And, like, that's what he is to us is the guitar player. You know, not the not God's son, not his his prince, not a man who's been created in God's image. But he's he, his value to us is that he plays guitar. You degrade Jim, even though you like his guitar playing. It's not who he is. I mean, we could just nail that down for everybody. Value judgments, discount or ignore our true worth, which is the imago dei, the image of God. Every human being, even those who do not yet know Christ, are image bearers, and thus we are priceless. Somebody once said to me, how, how much is it worth you know, to, to spend this money to do this for, for a particular thing we were trying to do to reach out to people? And I'm not going to go into the details. Sometimes I can't share stories all the way okay, because of pastoral confidentiality. So you just trust me. There's something we're doing as a church. People struggling with us spending the money on it. Now understand something. We have to be wise stewards and we know that. But the person was like, I don't know that this is worth, that that getting these people is worth the expense. You need to go watch Visa commercials again. New roof, $6,500. Electric bill, $300 a month. Somebody coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Priceless. Priceless. See what I'm saying? I'm not saying we need to go be bad stewards and just throw away the resources that God gives us. Please don't take that away. That's the part I'll get soundbited on. Pastor says just throw it all away. No, I didn't. Okay? But see, people are worth it. People are worth it. Because they're image bearers of our God, even before they were saved. We are valuable simply because God loves us. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the saved people that He... No, it doesn't say that, does it? For God so loved those who had already surrendered to Christ. No. For God so loved the people who look like me. No. It doesn't say that. It says, For God so loved the... Let's try again. For God so loved the... And that includes how many people? Everybody. That He gave His one and only Son. That whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Romans 5.8 says this. This is one of those things too that says that you're not a sinner if you're born again. God demonstrated His love to us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Before you had repented and believed, before you had put your trust in Him, while you were still a sinner, and you're not anymore if you're born again. Can I get that through your head? Okay. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Hallelujah. While you were a sinner, Christ died for you. Amen? 
He didn't tell you you weren't worth it until you got yourself cleaned up. And he's not telling that to them either. See, we, the other thing about the value judgments that pops out to me is we often judge people positively who God judges negatively. We look at them in a positive light when God looks at them in a negative light. And our ability to judge rightly is severely lacking. I mean, look at verses 6 and 7. But you've dishonored the poor man. Because they said the poor man's worthless, right? Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? And let me just tell you something. A lot of poorer churches have at this point taken this as permission to look at, at rich people and say they're bad. This isn't permission to do that. God is simply saying here, you judge by the outward and I judge by the inward. And you miss it. Sometimes you want, sometimes you invite the wolf in. You're like, come eat me. Come eat me, grandma. But it's really the wolf in granny's clothing, clothing, right? We miss it. We judge by the outside. Not by what's really going on on the inside. God is the only one that can do that. We miss it. Our judgment is severely lacking. I, I has, I've said this, and I say this all the time. I've said it to our elders, each individually. I've said it to them collectively. I've said it to certain people in the church. You know, and I'll say it to everybody at some point or another. Like, there's only one person that goes to OCCA that I know for a shadow of a doubt is saved. Me. There's only one person that goes to OCCA that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt is saved. You. We sometimes judge wrongly. Now, there might be, my spirit might be resident, and I might be able to say, you know, boy, I seem to have a kindred spirit here with Keith, and I'm pretty sure that Keith is born again, and so I trust him like he is born again. But guys, Jesus says there's wheat and tares. And they're going to grow in the same field and it's going to be up to the angels to sort that out when we die. I've I've shared a little bit about wheat and tares with you guys, I know. We called tares in Kansas cheat grass. The combine can't even tell the difference between cheat grass and wheat. And we miss it. We're like the combine. Jesus says let them grow next to each other the whole time. The angels will sort it out. Amen? All right. See, this is why man looks at the outside, but only God can see the heart. Continuing on in our value judgments, when we judge others, it's not worth our time or effort. It's sin. That's what it says in verse 89. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin. We can't say that anybody is not worth the effort because discounting them is not based in love. It's based in self-righteous hypocrisy. That hurts. When I discount you and I say you're not worth reaching out to, that you're not worth ministering to, that you're not worth allowing into my life, and all of that, it's not based in love. It's based in my self-righteous hypocrisy. Now I'm pointing at me. Now I'm pointing at you. When you do that to somebody and you say, you're not worth me reaching out to, it's not based in love. It's based in your self-righteous hypocrisy. Now let me just give a little, a little pause. I want to put this on pause and I want to say something. 
Some of you have this struggle with people outside the church. Some of you have this struggle with people in the church. I find myself where my struggle more is, is wanting to bonk the people on the head that are already in the church and judging them negatively. And that's a good chunk of you. And then the other chunk of you struggles with those that are outside the church. We're all having struggles here. We all know what's messed up with everybody else. Right? But our evening speaker at camp this week said something really interesting. He said, when we're right with God, we tend to be hard on ourselves and, and, and gentle on others. When we're not right with God, we tend to be critical of others and easy on ourselves. If you're critical of other people, I challenge you to wrestle with whether or not you're right with God yourself. When you're running them down, when you're criticizing them for whatever they do, whether they're church people or whether they're saved or unsaved people. And I'm admitting my, one, my problem is more the church. My problem is more struggling with people who say they're Christians and acting like anything but Christians than people who say they're not and acting like they're not. But we all have different issues. Amen? Verse 9 through 11 teach us that our value judgments actually judge and condemn us, not them. When you're critical of other people, you're actually condemning yourselves, not them. For whoever, it says here, verse 9, but you show partiality, you're committing sin, and you're convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, said, do not murder. If you do commit adultery, but do not murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as the one who judged under the law of liberty. I know I went too far. Listen, we're convicting ourselves. We're agreeing that God's law is good. Give me, just shout it out. What is the worst sin that somebody can commit? There isn't one. They're all equal. If you keep the entire law yet stumble at just one point, you're guilty of breaking them all. That's what it says. I just read it to you. Read it in your Bible. Just make sure I'm not making it up. These varying levels of sin are not God's idea. They're our idea. I mean, even some of you said blasphemy. Actually, blasphemy is totally forgivable. It says, Jesus says, even their blasphemies will be forgiven them. And then he goes on to say, except for blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's not that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is any worse. It's that the person who is so hard-hearted to blaspheme and credit Satan for what God did is not going to ask for God to forgive them. They're not going to repent. You're that turned off to God that when you see God's hand clearly working, you say, that's not God, that's Satan. You're so hard-hearted, you're never going to ask to be forgiven for it. And Jesus says a couple of verses ahead of that, even their blasphemies will be forgiven. You, and, and you break the law one time, you're guilty of all of it. You're accountable for all of it. Our self-righteous behavior backfires and condemns us. And here's the last thing our value judgments do. They prove that we do not understand God's heart for the lost. They prove that they don't we, they prove that, that we do not understand his heart for the lost. 
Let me read these verses to you, verses 12 and 13. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What God is saying right here is, I want you to give people mercy, not judgment. I want you to give them grace, not justice. Think about it. There's a sinful woman who's thrown down at Jesus' feet. He gets down on her level. I don't know what he wrote in the dirt, and I don't really care, and people have speculated about it. But you know what? Whatever he was writing in the dirt was not that important. Because he did not tell us what it was. Do not get caught up on the minutia. What is important is that he got down on her level. And he said to them, he stands up, he's like, hey, whoever's free of sin, chunk the first stone. And then we'll stone her to death. Guys, there was one person there who could have thrown a stone at her by what he said. Him. And he didn't. He had the right to kill her. But he gave her mercy instead. Let that sink in. The one who could stone her didn't. Not to keep the ones who couldn't, who didn't have the right to stone her from doing it, because he could have just miraculously taken her away from there. He could have done it. He could have stopped it any other way. He said, "Let let he who's free of sin cast the first stone." He was the one who could do it, and he wouldn't do it. Mercy triumphs over judgment. God's not looking for you to judge people. Listen to me. I'm not saying there's a judgment that's in Scripture that's a good type of judgment. It says it in the epistles that we're to judge those inside the church. And that means that we're to sit and, and, and work through stuff together and say, yes, this is righteousness. You know, we, we need to stop this. And that's okay. This is the type of judgment when you're looking down your nose at somebody and you're saying you're a piece of trash. Mercy triumphs over that. That's what he wants to give people. I know some of you are thinking this is a bit of a stretch. This passage is about showing partiality to someone who is rich versus a poor person. There's no way that it can apply to reaching out to sinful people like strippers or drug addicts or murderers or prostitutes or gangbangers or that kid that's at the mall with the saggy pants that you just want to choke. I wish Daniel was here in the room because I'd tell him that we could even reach out to the Cardinals. I would argue that you're focusing too much on the specific example James James is using and you're missing the point. You're missing the principle that he's teaching. He's using an example of money versus poor. This is an example and if you think this is a bit of a stretch, I think you're, you're, looking, you're looking too closely at the specific example and you're missing the principle. You are failing to see the forest because you're caught up in the wonder of one little tree. Don't get me wrong, trees are awesome. Sometimes we stop and we focus on one little tree, one little word, one little nuance of a meaning. That's neat. But we need to step back and see the whole forest too. I, I can go right out into Cook Forest and what makes Cook Forest beautiful is the whole thing. Not one tree. Amen? Make sense? 
Okay, look at the overarching principle. The overarching principle here is that when we value these people, we're, we're, it's a problem. Let me illustrate two real stories. Let me give you two real stories as a closing illustration to explain this, okay? All right. In Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50, there's a sinful woman who comes to Jesus Christ. Now, you've got to understand something. In the Jewish culture, in the Mishnah and the Gemara, which is the written-down oral law, this is what we call the Talmud, when it was written down, the Mishnah and the Gemara, that's the two books that make it up. Now, inside of these books, it's recorded that you could not require a Hebrew slave to wash a Jewish person's feet. Okay? You could not do that according to the, to the oral law. It's against the law. Because it was such a degrading job. That's because they were walking around barefoot most of the places they went. They had open sewers along the sides of their streets. I've been at places where there's open sewers. And man, whatever touches the ground is nasty. There is no five-second rule. There is a, did that even get close to the ground? Don't touch it, don't touch it. Right? So you can't even require a Jewish slave. They would, put, they would sell themselves into slavery until the year of Jubilee, to pay for debts, right? Wasn't the kind of slavery that we experienced in America. It was a very different thing. They would sell them. You could not make a Jewish slave do this, wash feet. But there's this woman who's a Jew who comes to Jesus. She's at Simon the Pharisee's house, okay? Now, I just want to argue with you a little bit here. I, I, said, I did say argue on purpose. Not that I really want to fight with you, but I want to put an argument before you. It wasn't an insult to be called a Pharisee when Jesus was on the planet. It was actually a compliment. That's like saying he was at the evangelical, the conservative evangelical's house. This was the religious elite. These are the people who understood God's heart for everything, but had gotten a little legalistic. Kind of sounds like us as evangelicals sometimes. Right? So he's, so he's hanging out at their house. He's hanging out with Simon the Pharisee. And this woman shows up. She's a woman of ill repute. She's a prostitute. I don't know exactly what she, you know, all she's guilty of. She's there and she is crying. Because she's been convicted of, of her sin and because God has drawn her. And she takes her tears and she wets his feet. And she's not even, she can't even require her to do this if she was a slave to wash his feet. But she's doing it with her tears. And then she takes her hair and cleans it off. Listen, what's in sewers? You don't have to answer it. Just get the picture in your head. She puts this on her head to serve him. Ah, ah, that's just gross. And I'm not trying to make you sick to your stomach. I'm just saying, you got to picture the scene that's going on here. This isn't like, worst case scenario, Jesus had a little bit of smelly feet from wearing his socks too long. This is his feet are disgusting they're just nasty. I said at camp this week, they're funky. That's not funky. My dad used to say funky. It has an A and a U in it just instead of a U. You know, that's really bad, right? And he anoints, or she anoints him, cries, wipes it with her hair, and Simon pulls a value judgment on her and condemns her in his heart. He says, man, Jesus knew what kind of piece of trash this was. He wouldn't let her, he wouldn't let her touch him. If he, if he knew, there's no way. Theologian Ken here notes this in his commentary on the passage when he says, what was going on in the room, this was more than the Pharisee could handle. Religious men? Well, they kept a safe distance between themselves and sinners lest they become contaminated. 
By the way, that's on page 121 of his commentary on the book of Luke. You can look it up. See, religious men, well, we didn't do that. We don't let them, they'll defile us. I had somebody in a church tell me one time, and you might feel this way, and if you do, please don't tell me. Okay, keep it to yourself. I love you, but you know I struggle with church people sometimes, okay? They said to me, Pastor, the church is a fortress for believers to shelter away from the world. You need to stop bringing all of these people here. I think we've missed God's heart. And then this story is being told all over and over and over again. The story out of Luke chapter 7. It's being told in probably hundreds, maybe thousands of languages at this point. It's being told all over the world. And the conservative evangelical, the Pharisee, who should have been the hero of the story, is actually being painted out by Jesus as the villain. And the woman who should have been the villain of the story is actually the heroine of the story. The Pharisee, Simon the Pharisee, is the example for the whole world of what not to do. And the woman is the example of how it's supposed to be. The bad girl is the positive example. And the second story is yours. Now some of you right now are thinking, but I never was a bad person. I'm really worried for you if you're thinking that. I'm very concerned. And I don't care if you grew up in the church. If you think you weren't bad, be afraid. Be very afraid. You were the woman of ill repute. And somewhere along the way, somebody showed you mercy instead of judgment. Somewhere along the way, somebody said, you have immense value to Jesus Christ, and I love you enough to allow myself to be defiled for you. Jesus allowed himself to be ceremonially defiled over and over and over again. Do we agree with that? Can everybody agree with that? Let me just give you some examples real quick. He couldn't touch a leper, yet lepers touched him and he cleansed them. You couldn't touch a woman who was bleeding from places that we don't want to talk about in front of, in front of kids. And you can't, you're not supposed to touch them, but a woman touched him and she was healed. I mean, people over and over and over and over again defile Jesus ceremonially. Yet the scriptures tell us that he never sinned. What? You mean people could ceremonially defile us and it's not sin? You mean it's okay to actually rub elbows with somebody who's dirty and I won't get dirty too? See, I believe with all of my heart that we're convinced that that it's more likely that they'll defile us than Jesus sanctify them. When we judge people as not worth the effort, it's based in our fear that they will defile us rather than Jesus sanctifying them. And I believe God wants to set you free from that silly little fear. And yes, it's silly. And yes, I struggle with it at times. Now listen to me. I'm not saying we need to be unwise. Guys, you do not need to be doing stripper outreach. We need to leave that to the women. Can I get a witness? Okay. Unless the strippers are Chippendales and then the guys need to do it. Okay? Like we don't need to, you know, you don't put 
crack cocaine in front of a crack addict and say, go, you know, you don't send the crack addict, the former crack addict, to the crack house to reach out to the crack dealer. You send somebody who doesn't have an issue with crack to go to the crack house to reach out to the crack dealer. Okay? We're more convinced that they'll defile us rather than Jesus can sanctify them. By the way, we're convinced of stuff like this a lot. It's like why we're afraid of like, you're going to say, how does this all line up? Just trust me, it does. You'll see in the end. It's like, well, we can't have anybody speak in tongues because it's probably Satan. We're more convinced that Satan can give a false manifestation of the spiritual gift of tongues than we're convinced that God could do the real thing. Well, we can't have any, we can't have anybody get healed because it might be fake. I've been those places where they grew their leg out and it was just them standing crooked. Hey, I've been there too, and I've seen the crooked ones. But let me tell you something. I'm more convinced that God could do it for real than Satan could fake it or you could fake it. Jesus is more powerful than Satan, last I checked. Can I get a witness? Okay. He is able to sanctify them. We need to be convinced that he's more able to sanctify them than them destroy us. I'm not, now, I'm not saying we need to go be unwise and do it in stupid ways. We don't. I've already said that very clearly. But we need to trust that he can work. When we're willing to get dirty with the sinners, we prove that God's grace is amazing and we display Christ's heart for the lost. When I'm willing to get dirty with a sinner, I prove that God's grace is amazing as I get down there and display Christ's love for the lost. What triumphs over judgment? Okay, let's try again. What triumphs over judgment? Pick today. You get a pick. You want to be on the winning team or the losing team? Which team wins? Team mercy or team judgment? Team Mercy, right? Which team you want to be on? Which team? I wasn't even expecting an answer. Thank you. Amen. (laughs) Thank you for saying it. Mercy wins. It wins. Cool thing is, we get to pick which team we want to be on. And I think it needs to start inside of God's house. We're not going to have an altar call this morning. Instead, I'm going to encourage you to join one of these open life groups and discuss this this week at these open life groups because the open life groups discuss the sermon. The second thing I'm going to encourage you to do is that I want you right now, I want you just to say, God, speak to me. Just say that in your head. All right? Now, I'm going to ask the Lord to, to, to give you a name or maybe several names of people, might be church people, might be lost people, that you've judged instead of given mercy. Lord, give them those names now. Now, I know you've got those names. I know that they're flooding. Now I want you to get a pen out or a pencil and start writing names down so that you don't forget. Go ahead and do that. Write them down. And I want you to go to that person. If they're in the building, go make right with them. Go make right with them today. If they're not in the building, give them a call and say, Hey, I've judged you. I've said you were less. I want you to forgive me. You might just be surprised and find that God does some amazing healing in your own life through this. Let's get on Team Mercy, amen? Let's pray. Father, we come before you today and we ask you that you would have your way inside of our lives. 
that you would help us to be on team mercy instead of on team judgment. Lord, we're not asking for you to, to tell us that you know, we don't know what sin is or that we just allow people to live any old way that we want to because, Lord, we know the rest of the canon of Scripture has plenty of examples of where we're supposed to live holy because you're holy. So we understand that it does matter how we live. But God, give us a heart of mercy. Help us to understand your heart for, for lost people, your heart of love. Help us to understand that. Do an amazing work inside of each one of us. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen.